All right, let's have a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll do a little review to get us up to speed. It's been uh, over a month since we've been in 1 Samuel. So we had uh, a week of missionary report. We had two weeks I wasn't here, and there was another week there we missed. So it's really been five weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel. And so we're going to have to, but it's an important time to transition. Uh, we're actually into another section of it from this, the viewpoint that I'm coming to it from. Let's go, Lord, in prayer, though, before we get into it. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to gather your name tonight. And for our Sunday school hour that has been completed, we thank you for those that taught and instructed and for the opportunity to just spend some more time in your word and uh, be trained in it. And Lord, our prayers that similarly during this time, as we take your word and open it, that it might impact our lives. We pray, as always, your spirit might have control in this time. Uh, in what is said, what is received, the manner in which it is received. And Lord, we uh, do thank you so much for your word of truth and for the institutions that you have given us as to uh, fashion a society, uh, that fundamental one of family, and then even of this larger family called church, uh, family of God. And then, Lord, we also recognize that uh, the nations as well are in place and that you work in them and through them even as uh, they deny your existence. Uh, you are still the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we thank you for revealing yourself to us in this manner. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. We spent several weeks going over the government of the home. And this has been going to be our perspective on all of First Samuel. We're going to be looking at it as a, as a study on government. And so there, we're not necessarily going to go verse by verse uh, as we go forward, uh, particularly because by the time we get to chapter 9, we're going to be into a, uh, a monarchy, and we're going to have the rest of the book dealing with the monarchy, specifically of Saul and David, and I do want to do some real careful studies there because there's a lot to learn, uh, especially from David uh, in that series and, and in terms of what is our relationship to government, even government that has gone bad. And we're going to see how David handled, what do you do with a government that's gone bad where an evil spirit is in your, not president, but king. And so we're going to be looking at government from that perspective. Uh, we're we just finished the government of the home where we see Elkanah and his wife Hannah. We see their relationship, their role as parents, uh, their relationship with dedicating their child to the Lord Samuel, uh, their responsibilities that they carried there, and, and some of the frictions that were there and some of the failures both of Elkanah, of Hannah, and of Eli as a father and as the father, if you will, of Israel, the high priest there. And we saw and looked at what is God's expectations of the government within our home uh, and how should it be worked out and what can we learn from these first few chapters of Samuel as well as other passages that we studied uh, to look at the responsibilities of the husband uh, as the father, as two separate roles, and uh, yet in, in the same individual, uh, and the leadership responsibilities there and the accountability it has before God and the, the necessity of leading our families in worship, leading um, 
our homes and following the principles of God's Word as closely as we can and realizing that when we violate those principles, um, the misery that ensues from that is our own fault. And stop blaming everything else around us instead of just taking responsibility. And Elkanah violated the principles of God's Word of a man and woman being one flesh. He had two wives and it created an environment that caused problems in his home and conflict and, and misery. Uh, we have uh, you know, him having to address that when he should have been worshiping and feasting before the Lord and rejoicing. Instead, he had to deal with a contention between his wives and one wife that could not come to a point of rejoicing in a feast and wouldn't eat, was fasting when she should have been feasting and uh, we dealt with the necessity of us following the principles of God's Word. Uh, we saw also uh, the commitment of our children to the Lord and parenting. We did see Hannah respond to her husband on several occasions uh, and uh, the place of prayer in that, play, in that role of the uh, wife understanding her place there, uh, uh, putting aside her own uh, interests in the interests of serving God and worshiping Him. Uh, we also looked at, in terms of parenting, and we took that for several weeks and saw a very different model than what we're seeing proposed today in the upbringing of Samuel, of raising servants, and the need that we have still today within our families and within our church, and really we have that need in our society, but they reject that need, that we need to raise individuals to be servants. And that begins not when they're 18 and graduate. It does not begin uh, when they can read and talk. It begins in the home at a very early age. So Samuel, by the time he's three years old, knows how to serve the Lord. Before he even knows the Lord, he knows how to serve the Lord. And what it takes to raise a servant of God that is... Uh, going to be used of God. And uh, the role that mom had, the role that dad had, the role that Eli the priest had in that place. And also the responsibility of Samuel to respond, not with bitterness or with uh, uh, any of the uh, evidences of rebellion, but rather to accept um, where God had placed him and the role that God had placed upon him. And so we saw how God took Samuel, made him his servant, and we're going to explore that a little bit more tonight. Uh, so that's a little bit of our background. We've explored the government of our homes, what they should look like, uh, well, how that applies to parenting and the, the parental role in government over the children, that we are not there to serve them. We are there to train them, and that's a very different role. We are not, uh, that role primarily falls upon the husband, the father. Uh, in fact, I challenge you to find passages that tell us how women are to nurture their children, because there are none. It's all about men, how men are to do it. Men, how to train your children. Uh, and that is throughout Scripture. It falls on your shoulders. This is not the female's role in the home, but the male's role in the home is to train their children. Uh, not only spiritually, but in every capacity that we take that responsibility on and how feminized our culture is that we have extracted many of the biblical roles of males in the home and we have given them away um, 
outside of the home, first of all, is the biggest problem. And then secondly, outside of the authority of the husband. That we have lost that. And so we place them in schools where they are generally taught by women, mainly as teachers, uh, historically, and we have taken away that responsibility out of the home. And we have reaped the consequences of that. So we come now to now the government of God's people. And I know that Israel, even into the time of monarchy, are still technically God's people. But God did make a statement when they chose a monarchy, and that is they have not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. And so that movement into a monarchy was a result of rejecting God, not accepting Him. And so those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior have have lived by faith and call themselves by God's name. Um, I would fall. I would bring them into this category that you have brought yourself voluntarily into a theocracy, a kind of government, and that we as a church family have brought ourselves into that same kind of government. And it's unfortunate that our church, like many other churches, have really tried to formulate our church government upon not Scripture, but our national government, a democracy. and uh, Or not even a democracy, a republic kind of thing. And many of the churches are engaging that. Um, but we're going to see how a democracy fits into this. And maybe the only place a democracy really works is when you have uh, it, the electorate, the, the body that is making choices, all submitted to God. That if that is not the condition, no democracy will ever work. It has never worked in the past. It will never work again in any country, in any circumstance, if the people aren't submitted to God. And that's why we keep trying to extract our... Our democracy is failing here. We weren't really ever a true democracy in fact, if any time in the history of our nation we are a democracy, it's now, not historically. We are more of a democracy now than we ever were. We were much more of a republic in the past where men were voted to represent and they voted their conscience and they voted what they determined was right and wrong. Now we don't have that. We have men going in and voting what is popular based upon polls so they can get reelected. And so we are controlling our elected officials by polls that's why I don't participate in them when they call. And for some reason, they like to call. Do they call you guys all the time? So, no, I don't want my elected leaders to vote the polls. I want them to vote conscience. And if they don't have one, then they shouldn't be there. That's how a republic is supposed to work. But now we have a democracy where the majority rule. And when the majority are not godly, guess what their decisions are going to be? Ungodly. Yeah, it's a, it's a no-brainer, right? And yet we are still in day with this idea that the majority are always going to make the right choice. The majority never will make the right choice, even when it's God's people, if they're not God-led, spirit-led. And we're going to find God's people making bad choices in 1 Samuel uh, because they are not submitted to God. They don't trust Him. So even in churches, a true democracy is a dangerous thing, and it can only work under the umbrella of a theocracy, when each member is submitted to God. So we're going to study what does a theocracy look like, which is really what the church's government should be more like. It should be less like the nation and more like the scripture. And in fact, here is a time when God led his people. And 
Yeah, we would like there to be a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but we are not in the Exodus. And that only lasted until the, the, until the time in, in the uh, wilderness was gone. When they entered the land, that was, that was over. Now you're going to be governed by the law. You're going to be governed by my uh, priests and Levites. And as they interpret and apply the law, uh, that's how you're going to be governed. So we're in that kind of an environment where we are all called to be followers of God. That to be called a church is a body of saints, of holy ones, separated, that's what holy means, separated to God. Separate from what? From the world, from its philosophies, ideals, separated to God. And so in that condition now, we come to these only four chapters, really three chapters, of uh, description of what it's like. What is it like when God leads us? When God is our government? How does he do that? What does it look like? Does it mean everyone just follows whatever they want to do because we're all led by the Holy Spirit? And there's a body of, there's a body of teaching out there. It's called uh, New Covenant, I think, is teaching. And that's pretty much what they believe is that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, just the same Holy Spirit as the apostles. So whatever they do is as Spirit-led as what they did. Whatever they say is as Spirit-led as the Bible. And so any declaration they want to believe because they're led by the Spirit, is equal in authority of the Bible. They also teach that you can't sin, because a Spirit-led person can't sin, so everything you do is okay. It's liberty, 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 with no confines. And so we find that uh, um, that's out there today. Well, we don't see God operating that way. But we're going to see how He does choose to operate. It's not everyone do what you want under the guise of being spirit-led, believe whatever you want under the guise of being spirit-led, but rather that when we have God as our king, as our Lord, as our master, what does that government look like for a body of people, for a group of people? We teach about the Christian life, and that's more about your personal life when God is your king. Lordship. What does lordship look like? Now, what does it look like when you have a group of people who claim God as their king? What does that look like? What should it look like? And this is what we have here in Samuel. We have a lot of history because it goes back all the way to Moses uh, and the law. So we have a lot of example of that. We have the whole book of Judges giving us generations of what it looks like. But we're going to examine it more particularly through 1 Samuel. So in chapter 2, Eli is very old. It says in verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22, Eli is very old. He was a judge over Israel. He's described as that, but he failed. He failed in transferring that to his sons. And his sons did wickedness. And that is shared with us in, uh, earlier in the chapter uh, in verse uh, 16, 15, 16, uh, culminating verse 17. And it says, Therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And so God's going to judge the judge. So here's the high priest of Israel judging Israel, and his responsibility is to communicate the word of the Lord. That as God gives it to him, he gives it to the people, and it is to be executed among the people. If there's failure anywhere along there, it's never going to be of God's part of not giving the word. It's going to be failure of either the judge to communicate it, or of those under his authority to execute it. 
And so when people of God, when the, well, when the leadership that God establishes does not follow God's word, they come under judgment themselves. And probably in the book of Judges, Samson stands out, you know, as the one who didn't uh, follow God and, and, and didn't fully submit. God used him to a degree, but ultimately his, it was uh, a painful end for him. And we don't see him as one that we would go to and point to and say, there's a man who loved and glorified God all his life. For he seemed to live for himself. And he suffered for that. And so, within the context of the people of God, here's how God works. He gives his word. He gives it to uh, sometimes more than one person. Uh, We think of Moses, but there was also the 70 elders. All were made prophets and allowed to prophesy uh, certainly Aaron was involved in that. And so we find uh, that there were ample judges and prophets uh, until they rejected. When they stopped wanting to hear it, God took away his revelation. He took away the judge. The judge would die. There wouldn't be another generation. And Israel would go right back into sin because they weren't responsive to God's word. God removed that. And we find that being the case here at the end of Eli's life, that the word of the Lord became rare. Chapter 3 is where I'm at, verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. So because Eli was now himself under judgment, because he did not restrain his own sons, so now he's under judgment, all of Israel is abhorring the sacrifice. They don't want anything to do with... I'm going to translate this into, into our age, okay? They didn't want anything to do with church. They didn't like how it was being done. Because it wasn't, not because it wasn't being done, it wasn't entertaining, okay? Uh, that's later on. That's when they've already fallen into uh, disconnect with God's Word. They didn't enjoy it. They didn't want to do it because it wasn't being done right. And by right, I mean biblically. So, when church stopped being done biblically, people stopped wanting to have anything to do with it. And here, all Israel doesn't want it. They abhor, they hate going to church. Because church isn't being done right. It's not being biblical. And so, there's no attraction anymore. There's no interest. They actually hate it. They they wake up on, on Sunday morning, they don't want anything to do with it because it's not biblical. That day has long passed. In our age. To the point that when we try to introduce biblical concepts, uh, people resist it because they're either ignorant of God's word, like Israel, and they're late in their history, or they just didn't even know. Because there was no word of the Lord. They had lost the law. And they go to clean out the temple and some priest finds it and says, hey, we found this book. Well, let's read it. Wow, we're supposed to be having a Feast of Tabernacles right now. What have we been thinking? They were that disconnected from their worship. Well, how do you get to that point? Well, you get to that point way back here when you have the leadership failing to lead the people in biblical worship. And then they become disinterested because it's not real. It's not biblical. Then they lose track of what is biblical because they're not being trained at all. And then worship gets totally recreated. They're still claiming to worship God, but they're 
doing it some other way, the world's way, the nation's way. And they forget the Lord. In this case, God is judging them. Um, first of all, their leadership failed from Eli and his sons. Failure leadership is, is we're going to tackle that. How do we do it when leadership in our churches fails? If we believe in a theocracy, and it's going to maybe surprise you a little bit, it's not by running and going to another church where leadership isn't failing. It's very different. If we really believe God's in control, and this is his group of believers, um, and leadership starts failing, there's a different response. We're going to see it down the road here. But we find the leadership has failed. Because of the failure of leadership, the people don't want to go to church anymore. They don't want to worship God. And because they're disinterested now, um, God says, I'm not going to give you any revelation. And so there was no word of the Lord. There was no further direction. God wasn't leading. The Spirit of the Lord was gone. This is the condition that Samuel arrives in. So he's showing up as a young man, a very young boy, says a boy. So that's he's under 12, probably under 10, probably 8 to 10 years old. And he's given his first revelation. God comes to him, calls him. We looked at that of the servant response, here I am, here I am, here I am. And God gives him his first <laughs> prophecy. Isn't this a great message you get to give? Your first prophecy is for the guy raising you, the leader of your people, the judge, the pastor of your church. Your first prophecy is given about your pastor of your church. Remember, I'm translating this into our age. So here you are, you're like 10, 12 years old, you're being raised in the pastor's house. And God comes to you, and your pastor has helped you understand that this is God and not him and not someone else. This is God, and here's how you answer him. And God comes to you and says, listen, I'm about ready to judge your pastor because he has done wickedness, and there's no sacrifice that can be made to make up for it. He can't be forgiven. His house is going to be eternally judged. I've already told him that. I've already told him that. Now I'm telling you that. And so this young man wakes up in the morning. Scared. That's kind of a scary thing to put on a 10-year-old, don't you think? 8-year-old, whatever he was. 8 to 10-year-old. You're living at pastor's house. You're not his son. And you've got to go up to pastor who knows that the Lord has visited you that night and comes to you and makes this declaration. Tell me everything God told you. And fundamentally... This is the responsibility of leadership, of a prophet. Tell others everything God's told you. And we're going to pick this up, the story up, in um, verse 16, um, verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He did his normal job. He did that every morning, got up, and he opened the place up for business. He was a servant. And um, Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Of course he was. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, here I am. Great servant response. It's still there. The heart's still there. There's a lot of fear, but the heart's still there. Verse 17, and he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God, do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Out of Eli's own mouth comes his own condemnation. Eli had failed to do this very thing. 
He failed to communicate everything God wanted him to tell Israel through his sons as well and restrain their sin and bring them into uh, conformity or judge them like he was. He failed to do this very job. And so judgment came upon him. And he knows what the last word he got from the Lord. The last word he got from the Lord was, your house is judged. You and your sons are done. Your whole line is done. I am finished with you. Eli's already known that for some time. Now he comes and he says, listen, God sent you a prophetic message. And if he sent you a prophetic message, it's probably about judgment because we are in no condition as a nation to hear any other prophecies. So, he sent you a message of judgment. You tell me that message or the judgment that he's told you about is going to come back onto you. And this is fundamentally, Eli understood his role. He understood his responsibility. I'm the judge. I have to tell people what God's told me. I'm the pastor. If I stop telling people what God's word says, and I just start spouting off my opinion or the philosophies of this world, then I come under God's judgment. Not yours, not Samuel's, God's judgment. And so Eli is there, and, and Samuel says, well, here's what God said, that there's no sacrifice that's going to be covered for you. He says, tells them the whole thing. Samuel told him everything and says he had nothing from him. And this is Eli's response. It is... I lost it. Let me find it. It is, it is the Lord. There it is in the middle of the verse. That's why. Let him do what seems good to him. So we expect that, well, we have God fed up with him, telling Eli that I'm going to take you out um, and your whole family. I'm done with you as a line, uh, as a family line. He's now communicated that to Samuel, the, the newest prophet, the one who's just discovered God, this, this young boy. Um, now we have Eli accepting that God's going to judge him. There's nothing he can do about it. And so we can condemn Eli for not repenting on the spot. But God's already said there's nothing you can do to change it. It's so bad. This is so bad. Your leadership is so bad in the church, Pastor. There's nothing we can do for you anymore. We're not going to vote you out. We're just not. There's nothing God can do for you. And we would expect that right away, the next thing that's going to happen is Eli and his sons are going to be killed. It doesn't happen right away. Samuel has this prophetic message. Eli's very old. But something's going to happen for a while. Let's look at it. In verse 19, it says, So Samuel grew. How long does it take for a child to grow? Years. 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 We don't know how many years, whether it's two, four, six, eight. We don't know how old he is when he gets into his, his national ministry uh, that we're going to see later on, not in chapter 4. We're not going to find it in chapter 4. He's, he's not there. Um, nowhere do we find Samuel in chapter 4. I know verse 1 says the word Sam, that really should be attached to chapter 3. That first sentence of chapter 4 really belongs to chapter 3. And so Samuel grew. So for a period of time, uh, uh, there's 
Eli and his sons, and Israel abhorring the sacrifices. Eli is, or I'm sorry, Samuel is growing up. He's already had his first prophetic message. Um, he's probably had some others along the way, even as a young, young man, uh, young, even as an older boy, young man. Um, it says the Lord is going to uh, make sure that no word that comes out of Samuel's mouth falls to the ground. In other words, anything that Samuel says, if he declares it, and that's something that God has given to him, God's going to be faithful and support Samuel so that Samuel, even as a young man, very young, was already able to prophesy, and God kept every word he said and said, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. That's gonna. Does that mean it all happened right away? No. The first word hadn't happened yet, had it? Years go by, and you still have a judge, Eli, who is under God's thumb. I am going to wipe you out, your children, and your line so that none of you are ever going to get old again. But years go by before we get to chapter 4. Samuel has to grow up first. Eli's replacement, if you will, as judge over the nation, isn't quite ready to fill all the shoes, all the responsibilities there. And so God is patient with Eli. And so in this government of a theocracy, um, it, it's frustrating to us, isn't it? Because we're Americans. We're, we're used to taking matters into our own hands and, you know, vote the bums out. Right? Don't we believe in that? Vote the bums out. Uh, that's a very American ideology that is a violation of a theocracy. And this is going to take us we're going to revisit this time and again, time and again, time and again. In fact, I know of three times we're going to visit this very same idea throughout this series. Um, we're going to visit it again when Samuel's kids don't do right. They're going to do the same things that Eli's kids did. Samuel's kids are going to do the same thing. We're going to visit it again when Saul does the same thing. Fails. And we're going to see it again when David does the same thing and his sons screw up. What does it mean to acknowledge God as Lord and Master, as King? When He is the height of your government, it demands us to allow Him to work in men's lives to do His act of judgment rather than us being the judge. And when we claim that we are followers of God, then we have responsibility to certainly examine leadership and uh, to uh, pray for it and to follow that leadership as it is godly. But when it begins to fail, um, our job is not to attack leadership. That is God's job. Rather, we should have that same fearfulness, the fearfulness of David saying, Man, I kind of feel bad that I cut a corner of his robe off of King Saul. This is a guy God had rejected. David had already been anointed the next king. But he felt bad cutting a piece of the robe off of the existing king. Oh, that we would have that kind of heart and that kind of trust of God. This is God's man. And so as such, let God deal with him. 
Let God judge him. And it might be years before that happens. There are several individuals that I am pretty sure need to be judged by God who are in positions of authority uh, in churches and particularly in parachurch organizations that I know of. And I'm like, how can they still be in the ministry doing what they're doing to people? Doing what they're doing to God's work. How can they still be there? Well, Samuel got this message, but it was years before it was executed. It wasn't Samuel's job to execute the message. It was never the prophet's job or the people's job to execute God's judgment, unless God tells them to specifically. Generally, they're waiting on the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to take this guy out and his sons, then I'm going to trust the Lord to do it when the time is right. And the Lord will do it his way, and I'll be innocent. Samuel is going to be innocent of what's going to happen. That's why I believe his name isn't referenced in chapter 4. He's not involved. This is the work of God against Eli, his sons, and the people of Israel. Samuel is glaringly vacant from the whole event of chapter 4 where they lose the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. Glaringly absent. Why? Because he's innocent. David, glaringly absent at the death of Saul and his sons. Why? Because God's going to preserve his innocence because he had the right heart. He trusted God to transfer the leadership in his time. And this is a hard thing to do. In fact, Israel doesn't want to do it the second time around. They don't want to do it when Samuel's kids. And that was the problem. They want to wait on the Lord to take care of things. They want to take matters in their own hands. And our churches and organizations tend in that direction. We tend in the direction of 1 Samuel chapter 8 instead of 1 Samuel chapter 3 and 4 where we're going to communicate what you're doing is wrong, God will judge you, and in the meantime, I'm going to grow and I'm going to keep doing my job, which is to minister. I'm going to point out the error and I'm going to wait on God to take it. And if it's near in time or if it's years away, um, wherever that is, God, you take out this man in your time because we're followers of you. This is your church. This is your leadership. And if uh, you want to take out leadership, you need to do it. Um, and God does it in his timing. And we trust in him. Then we come to uh, verses 20 through 21 and chapter 4, verse 1, the first sentence. I don't know why they put this sentence in chapter 4 when it obviously has to do only with verse 21. It says, All Israel... This is interesting. All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. They knew that everything in verse 19 was true. That this young man had grown up, the Lord was with him and prophesying to him, and that this youngster was the next guy God would use. Wasn't quite ready for the job completely. Wasn't quite mature enough for it. But everyone in Israel knew this was the guy. 
It was just a matter of time. Verse 21, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And now we have Samuel doing what Eli should have been doing. And this is how it works. The word of the Lord comes to his agent. You see it there? The word of the Lord didn't come to Eli anymore. It was rare in those days. No general revelation, no, no special revelation. There wasn't a revelatory work of God. God wasn't engaging because the people weren't responsive. And so God took it away. And now he was coming back, visiting Samuel, giving him a message. And this is how a theocracy works. God is the king, tells his agent what's supposed to be going on, and the agent has a responsibility to be literally the voice of God to his people. And so there's a responsibility. So the word of the Lord, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of the Lord didn't come to all Israel. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And a very powerful presentation of what a theocracy is going to look like. Um, it's not that all of Israel had direct access to God. Uh, and by the way, we have a unique theocracy in the church, and so I can't translate this into the church age very effectually um, because we all have a unique relationship. But we still have that God is going to work through his prophets, apostles, teachers, evangelists. So God has said this is the mechanism, and it's not that different, but it's somewhat different. And so here's the word of the Lord. Not further revelation, but inspiration now that the Holy Spirit works to illuminate this book, certainly to every believer as a priest before God. We have access to the Holy of Holies, each one of us. Yet God separates some out for the office of pastor-teacher. And that we have the responsibility upon Him to receive God's Word, be led by the Holy Spirit, Respond to it personally by doing his job and communicating it to others. If he fails to do that, God will judge him. God says, I hold you accountable for every word, for every instruction. And this is kind of the feeling in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul says, you know, some people preach Christ for all the wrong reasons, but I'm not going to Deal with them. God will deal with them. My response is to make sure that I preach Christ for all the right reasons. <laughs> and so for a church family, uh, looking at this kind, if we really re acknowledge ourselves as being under a theocracy, that God is our king, Jesus is our king, then we're going to have to trust him that he's going to raise up teachers that we need. that they're going to fulfill their responsibilities, and when they start to fail to do so, God will judge them. But you see, we have an American philosophy of government where we are the king, and if our leadership starts to fail, we will vote the bums out. And this is not a theocracy. A theocracy is willing to call sin, sin, recognize it, and then wait on the Lord to judge that and not participate in it. 
That doesn't mean not go to church, but not participate in the sin of that church. To not participate in the error that is there. And I regularly get letters from people. Uh, in fact, I just mailed one off this week that came and uh, asking, should I leave my church? And, and um, you know, they believe this, they're doing this, and, and like, we haven't joined yet, but we're not sure if we should. And uh, this is, you know, someone up in Colorado, and, and uh, it's weird. You know, I say, why do you get letters like that? Because I wrote a book. And so people read the book and they think that I'm the guy that should tell them things. And so they send that to me. That's okay. And, uh, but I hesitate because, you know, it's an unusual situation. Because we get to choose the church we go to. But once you make a commitment there and you have a church that believes in a theocracy as our church does, even though it doesn't show in our Constitution very well, um, that we believe that God leads, that we trust Him to raise up the leadership that we need and to judge the leadership that's failed. To bring His hand heavy upon their lives when they fail. But here's the pattern. God can communicate through His agent. His agent has full accountability to communicate every word of the Lord without twisting it, manipulating it, mishandling it, adding to it, subtracting from it. Every word is to be communicated to his people. To such a degree that whatever this guy says is what God says. When he begins to fail, God will stop telling him things. God will stop illuminating him. God will stop working through him. And it will be evident to everybody. It was evident to everybody who was preaching the truth. Eli or Samuel? Well, everyone from the north to the south knew that it was Samuel that the Lord was talking through, not Eli. But Eli was still around. And this transition, it's very easy for us to get impatient and to take over jobs, God's job. Sorry. Take over God's job. We're going to take it on ourselves to oppose the leadership of the church, because they're failing. To do this. To communicate the whole counsel of God. But we find that rather than that, the theocracy looks for a people who look to God's agent or agents. Sometimes there's more than one. Recognize that authority, that anointing that God has placed on that agent. And if not for, if they're not doing their work well, we don't have a coup. We bring it before the Lord and we wait for the Lord to change that leadership, to judge that leadership, or to work in that leadership to bring them to uh, fulfilling their responsibilities as they should. And the evidence here is that Eli was unresponsive to that. He wouldn't hold his sons back. And God, after challenging him and challenging him to do so, he refused to do it, and therefore he came under judgment. Samuel is going to be his replacement in many ways, as I said, but there's going to be a time frame of transition. 
God's going to judge Eli. That's for sure. It's coming next week. God's going to judge him. But if you are in a theocracy, you have responsibility like Samuel to wait on the Lord, like David to wait on the Lord. The Lord's got to do it. His timing. And it might be years. It might even be a generation. Can we wait on God that long? My whole life? To judge a nation? To judge a church? To judge a leader? Yeah. In fact, because we believe in eternity, waiting a lifetime isn't really that big a deal. (laughs) We make it a big deal. Oh, how can I live in this oppressive environment for all these years? Easy. You trust in the Lord. You do right, like Samuel. You serve the Lord to the capacity you are able to without participating in the evil that is the leadership's failure. The problem was is that when the people recognized that they didn't cry out to the Lord, I want to share with you, finally, one example of someone individually who thought that they had the right to expose failed leadership and what happened to them. Her brother was in charge. But he did something that didn't sit well. And he was in leadership. She was the older sister. And she was going to correct him. In fact, she was going to correct him publicly in front of the congregation. Which she proceeded to do. That she felt that she had a valid right to challenge him because he wasn't being the leader she thought he should be. Because of that, God judged her. And she came down leprosy. Her name was Miriam. Her brother was Moses. And God said, don't you dare go against my man. We have taken our American form of government and brought it into the church. And I think the church is the worst for it, not the better. And in many ways, all the church splits and all uh, are indicative of, and, and even to some degree, some of the denominationalism is a result of it. That instead of patiently waiting on the Lord to deal with the leadership, We take matters in our own hands. Well, how do we reverse that? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how to reverse that. Other than the fact that we can reverse it here. Hopefully we won't have to. Hopefully this leadership won't fail. (laughs) But if it does, are we willing to wait on the Lord to judge it? Are we going to take matters in our own hands like Miriam? 
and bring an accusation against God anoint, God's anointed one. It brings us into a very different idea of the government of the church where we begin to think, well, maybe I need to be more careful in my statements against the leadership, whether it be the pastors, deacons, Sunday school teacher, whoever it is, and recognize that if they're conducting their ministry poorly, um, first of all, it's they're God's man, not my man. Fundamentally, I'm not your pastor. I'm God's under-shepherd. I'm the shepherd of God's flock. I have a responsibility to Him. And if God is through with me, there's nothing on heaven and earth that can move that. That God could work in my life to reform ministry if it's gone bad. You can be a part of that, but not in the part of Miriam. It's going to bring accusation, but rather the part of Samuel. He grew up. He served the Lord faithfully. He had a valid testimony in all of Israel. This is a man of God. And he's going to wait. You're going to have the testimony of David, not Miriam. It says, yes, I'm the next king. But right now, he's the king. I will wait. And I will honor the king. Don't agree with him on everything and I know he's got an evil spirit about him. I mean, he chucks spears at you a few times. The guy tried to kill you. I'm not trying to kill any of you, and I don't know of any pastors that have attempted that. There probably are some, but I don't know them. Um, but still, we recognize that's God's man. And if this is his church, and that's his man, he can deal with that guy. My job, is like Samuel, is to be a servant of the Lord in this place and wait. And maybe I'm the guy that's going to take his place in the pulpit. It is totally, radically different government than we are accustomed to. But it's a biblical idea of what theocracy really means. It is saying God really can work. And he really can take out people that he needs to take out. He can remove them. Through illness, through disease, through battle, through uh, whatever. He can remove them. The question is, are you willing to trust God like Samuel? And I'm going to serve my priest, Eli. I'm going to be in his house. I'm going to grow up there, even with the knowledge that this guy is a dead man walking. And his children are going to die with him in one day. It's all going to happen in one day. That's going to make everybody go. You know why the church today doesn't ever go. Because they don't wait for the Lord to do it all one day. And because we've taken matters in our own hands in government of our churches. I believe we've missed huge blessings and workings of God in our midst. And that reform. Uh, I wish I could implement it globally, even nationally. Um, I'm struggling just figuring out how to implement it in one little church. But this is what a theocracy looks like. This is what it means to have Jesus as your king of your congregation, as your shepherd, to say, I trust him. To bring us the right people at the right time, do the right things, and when they fail, 
um, will trust him to take them out and to remove them. And uh, that's a difficult thing. Sometimes it takes years, years for that to be implemented, to execute it, that judgment. From the time it's determined by God to the time it actually is applied, executed, years. But Samuel faithfully served the Lord over the course of those three years, waiting, not biding his time. He faithfully served. Here I am. I mean, he knew that morning that Eli was done, that God was going to do a horrific thing to him, yet he ran up to him when he was called and says, here I am. Just like he did the night before when he didn't know any of that. Here I am. What do you want? Because you're still God's man. Even if you're destined for judgment because you're not doing your job right. I still owe you my service, my love, my prayers, my loyalty. I owe it to you. Just like David owed it to Saul, just like Miriam owed it to Moses. So recognizing that God is the one who gets to decide the leadership of church, not us. That's Americanism. And we're going to talk about that and what happens much later. Tough passage. And we're going to explore this idea of, like I said, we're going to come back and visit this probably three more times before we're done with 1 Samuel. But uh, I want to introduce it tonight because we're introducing what a theocracy looks like. And uh, this is what it requires of us. To wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for the instruction of your word and the examples that are here. And Lord, we don't understand. uh, We're unfamiliar with it because it's really ground that we've never covered. It's a place where we've never been really in our whole lives here in our country. Or we have really just uh, waited on you. Our whole country's philosophy we've been ingrained in with from birth almost was get it done and we'll do, take our matters in our own hands if necessary to make it happen. And uh, we now see from your word that really isn't the way to do your job, your work, your to lead your church. And so Lord, I want to just ask for your forgiveness for times that we've done that, that I've done that fail to wait upon you, but to press matters that didn't need to be pressed. And Lord, we don't know how much blessing we have lost because of it. We pray that we might just consider our ways of how we can better follow you uh, truly as our King, as our Lord, as our Master, as the chief shepherd of this flock. And Lord, as we go through these next few chapters and learn how you do that work, we are frightened. That when your hand really does move, that there is no no action of man that can thwart it. So Lord, we uh, pray that you might work in our midst whatever is necessary, that we might conform ourselves to your design, just as we wanted to conform ourselves to the design for our home. 
even though the world says not to. Lord, help us to conform our church government to your design and not our own. Give us that wisdom and that determination to bring this ourselves into conformity with your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.